Let's Keep It Going, the podcast of Emmaus Church, where we sit down with Pastor Nick to have extended discussion over last week's message, in the hope that it inspires ideas in and around the Emmaus Church community. If you missed last week's message, have a question, or just want to know more about Emmaus Church, you can visit us at www.emmauschurchsc.com. Now, let's keep it going. Hi, Thomas. Hey, hey, Lindsay. Hi, Nick. Hello, Lindsay. And live in studio today, slash my home office, uh, Kara Taylor. Finally. Finally. I didn't join y'all. I feel like a celebrity today. in the house. I'd like Nick to introduce Kara. Tell us about her. Man. So Kara is uh, our kids ministry director. Um. But more than that, she feels like, in so many ways, uh, like our conscience as a staff team. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know very many people who who inspire me more naturally and easily than Kara to actually be a good person. Mm-hmm. You know? Because she just is. Her and her family so consistent. So she oversees our kids' ministry. You're from Georgia. Mm-hmm. I know. Well, here's all the things I know about you. You're from Georgia. Mm-hmm. You like to hike. Mm-hmm. And swim. Mm-hmm. Big fan of swimming. Yeah. Um, I know more about you, but those are like the big things. Yeah. You uh, are very careful about your your diet. I, yes, I do have to be. You're particular about some stuff. Mm-hmm. You know. What else? I know without a fact, without a shadow of a doubt, if we were in a competitive situation, whether it was athletic or trivia, I would want Kara on oh, us. Oh, yes. <laughs> Very competitive. Not in a negative way, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Good competitive streak. Three kids who are awesome. A husband who's pretty cool and could easily make it on like a calendar, mat, you know, of like, oh, it's, <laughs> it's like a fire, it's like a fireman, like, like a, like, whoever, like your people's mentality, what a fireman should look like, yeah. you know? I think of Brian. <laughs> <laughs> He's got great hair. My first time being uh, part of the Mayest Church was at your house. Really? Yeah. Oh. That that uh. The fire in the backyard. That I think that was the day. Yeah. It was like coming over and everyone hanging out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Do we hit all the highlights? I think so. Did we miss Y'all anything? Very well. Well, you have well. some further questions. questions. Some rapid fire questions. Don't overthink it. Okay. Just let's in a Quick. snapshot get to know you really well. All right. All right. Cats or dogs? Mm, I have one of each. <laughs> rapid fire. Got to choose. Dog. Good answer. Which is what is your go to movie when you need a mood boost? Oh, gosh. 10 Things I Hate About You or Clueless. Yeah. What? 90s child. 90s. Yes. What is your favorite room in your house? Kitchen. All right. You have a good kitchen. I mean, I I love the open flow of my kitchen, but I find chopping food to Hmm. be cathartic. Hmm. Like just food prep. I enjoy prepping food for people. Mm -hmm. Are you a good food chopper? Like... Oh, I'm not. No, okay. I didn't take a class. I'm sure that a chef would cringe okay. at the way I hold a knife. What about your cutlery? Do you have like a last time you sharpened you have, a knife? My when my brother-in-law comes, he will sharpen my knives because he's really into knives. Does he bring like a fancy? Oh yes. corner? the kind with like the rocks. That you like sh- sh- uh, multiple. Yeah. Yes, you pass it. Those things are wild. Things. It's a total brother-in-law situation. Mm-hmm. What brand are your? Is your cutlery? I'm I'm into cutlery right now. Is it called Hinkle? Yeah, Hinkle's pretty good. It's German. It's for you. It's German. Oh. The best are Japanese knives. I have been married Long, almost 20 rough. years. No. That's not right. Yeah, definitely. The, the best are Wust, Wusthof is, in my opinion, the best, and it is German. <laughs> Shun is Japanese. It's pretty good, but Wusthof, I think, is better. What is going on? Well, I think <laughs> when you get into like the thousands of dollar ranges on knives, it's Japanese knives that go all the way. No. All right. Maybe. That was okay. not rapid. <laughs> All right. Next question. How do you spell okay? Okay or okay? Oh, oh, you got to have the A-Y. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> do you have a secret talent? A secret talent? Um, I can curl my tongue. All right. Let's see. Yeah. I can do like the loop. She's curling her tongue right now. Nice. You do the clover looking thing. She can do it. All right. Yeah. And it's yeah. funny. I think that's very genetic. My kids try to do it and I believe that. 
One of my kids, one of my three, I don't think can like loop their hmm. tongue, you know, do like the circle. But the other ones can. Yeah. All of my kids have a my, funny thing to have my facial muscle movement. We can all move like every part of our can face. Can you do the wave from the opposite? The slowest rapid fire. Yeah, it's not very rapid. It's not very rapid fire. Do you prefer talking on the phone or texting? Depends on who it's with. Mm-mm, gotta pick one. Talking on the phone. Oh. Ditto. If you could use magic to do one mundane thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? And what would you name the spell? A spell? Like for your magic. That's not a rapid fire question. <laughs> That's a great question. That's a great question. Wow. I had a do spell. It seconds. Like cast on me? Like something no. mundane so that you, you don't do. want to do, but so you want to cast a spell that like you want to do. Like for me, find my car keys. Okay. I snap my fingers. Boom. And they're in my hand. Oh, cleaning toilets. All right. And then what would you name your spell? Oh. Swishy wishy. <laughs> I was so like scrubby. Scrub, you said it. Scrubbly. Stubbly. I don't know. All right. Last question. Besides this podcast, mm. what is your favorite podcast? Um, I mean, it's gonna I'm going with Dax Shepard. All right. Yeah, I armchair expert. And flightless bird. Flightless bird. It's fine. I know about her. My absolute favorite. I love it because I enjoy traveling. Um, it, because I, I think what I love international travel about is it is so easy to find distinct cultural differences. And when you, when you're in the States, it's hard to, I don't know what our culture is. Like, I don't know what is like cultural. I mean, other than like being super See, you're uh, Southern. monetary. I th- Southerners are blind to this. Not all, it's not all of them. I mean, I grew up like, in the South. Yeah, it's but. interesting for me to hear you say that because I I moved here from the Midwest. Compared to the Midwest, there is like the mm-hmm. Southern culture is a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you have particular stuff you eat. You have yeah. low country boils. And where I'm from, yeah, there's nothing like that. Yeah. Everything's chicken and noodles. You know, it's just yeah. like Southerners don't acknowledge like the other cultures in America, though. So it's like it's like Southerners are like, oh, there's not that much of a. Culture. I, think, I don't. I, and then it was like, what about Northerns and Midwestern? And it's like, well, those are the wrong ones. <laughs> those, those are the wrong, the wrong cultures. It's only South. That's just intriguing because I, I don't know. But the I, Northerners I think, are like South, Midwest, yeah. California. I've moved Texas. and lived a decent amount of places around the United States, and each area has a cultural pocket. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's. You no, it's nicer them. than a Southerner, though. I, I, I take. I would rather be passive aggressive. I'd rather be passive aggressive and pleasant than just like be ask a question to somebody and they're just rude to my face. Mm. Yeah, sure. they're ultra aggressive. So where I'm, I'm from like Northwest Indiana. You know, close, like kind of in between Chicago and Indianapolis. They call it the region up there, and it's like super aggressive. Like you don't make eye contact with people. Mm. Making eye contact is like what you you want you gotta say something mm-hmm. to me i mean it's just it's kind of strange so it was a little weird moving down here and it was like people try to make eye contact with and we, well, i feel the same way about yeah. yes sir and yes ma'am because i i kind of grew up that that could be a little more um mm-hmm. disrespectful than right. respectful like right. horn honking oh hello like horn honking like in the north like that's a straight just like yeah you're the- disobeying traffic somehow but in the in the south it's like hi we can have a <laughs> passive. We're about to have a passive aggressive car battle <laughs> because you honked at me. Like I'm going to go slower. I'm going to wave smiling. <laughs> I'm going to not let you by. Like all right, last question. It's like that was it. Dangerous. I got one more. Okay. Before we turn the corner, uh, in light of who Emmaus is and who we want to be, when things are happening, what are you most proud of as a part of the staff? Ooh. Is that too self-serving? No? As a church? No? I'm why curious. Is it, like, church awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why is it awesome? Um, Specifically I, their leadership. I get uh, <laughs> <laughs> Didn't see that coming. <laughs> In my little department, you know, that I get domain over or whatever, I get the privilege of, um, you know, talking to parents and... Um, getting to see 
or hear about the great things that their kids are doing or something that they learned or or whatever. But um, in particular, I I never in my wildest dreams would have thought, you know, that we would um, get to have same-sex couples bringing their children to church mm-hmm. and um, that they are then also a part of our volunteer yeah. team. Um, yep. You know, I just, yeah. to me, that is exactly the type of thing that I had hoped for yeah. in um, in Emmaus Church. And I know that that's just the beginning. Yeah. That's tip of the iceberg. Well, we are lucky to have you, Carrie Taylor. I'm lucky to be here. I consider myself very lucky to be here. All right. Let's talk about Job. 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 Or John, as my phone kept wanting to autocorrect. Oh. I'm like, Job is the word. Why is it going to John? Yeah. I don't know. Mm. What, what were our thoughts from Sunday? Hopefully you got some. You want me to go first? Sure. I mean, I can go first. Um, I really it i really struggle with the the idea of like bad things happening to good people or that you know the phrase you you went through some phases phrases in the sermon that you were like do away with that one like mm-hmm. that they're in a better place oh, now they're everything happens for a reason everything happens for a reason latitudes another one that it brought to my mind was um God gives you only what you can handle. Mm-hmm. And I think about, um, selfishly, I think about myself. Um, like, you know, I suffer from several autoimmune hmm. diseases. And, um, and I'm like, and they just keep, you know, keep mm-hmm. coming. And, uh, and I think, okay, God, mm-hmm. that's been enough. You know, I, I, I've learned a lot, um, <laughs> you know. But then I think about struggles of friends and acquaintances and things, you know, unthinkable things that just continue to happen, um, what feels like rapid fire in their lives. And I, so I, I, that was a a phrase I thought I would add to, uh, let's do away with the... You know, I'm, I'm, God only gets you vote. what you can handle. I vote. I, vote. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how to. I don't. And I guess the, the other thing is like how my maybe my question is like, how do you respond when somebody says something like that? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to be insensitive or so direct that it's rude, you know, yeah. but I also don't want to be passive aggressive um, in the Southern culture. Thomas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think silence sometimes is the best answer. Yeah. And sometimes in a moment like that, silence can, you know, if somebody offers you something like that and you just, you don't say, thank you. You don't say, you just don't say anything, you know, it kind of like, I think it says a lot more than, you know, like I think the time to have those conversations is when you're not in the middle of a tragedy, you know, you don't, cause you're, you're not in your clear mind or whatever. I think it's something you talk about, you know, I just don't want to put that weight on somebody who's already having to carry something heavy mm-hmm. to then have to, you know, argue with somebody about whether or not they should say it. But I just kind of thanks, you yeah. know, or whatever. And, and I'm rolling. And I think on the other side of things, like we can, it's easy for us to see how, oh, when that thing happened, it prepared me, mm. you know, I mean, I, I am mature enough to like see that, mm-hmm. you know, it prepared me for this next thing. Yeah. But but I also think that it's dangerous to get into the mindset of, um, oh, well, this bad thing happened, and now I learned this. I don't know what what God's gonna let happen next. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't think that that's um, necessarily a healthy thing. I think that takes away the joy of living. Hmm. Um, you know, if we're looking hmm. for the next shoe to drop, if you will. I think that even that scripture is less about God giving you not giving you more than you can handle and more about the temptation aspect of it. And it's, I think it goes on about, you won't be, he gives you ways to endure being tempted, not suffering. So, and and enduring whatever you're, you're dealing with. So it's, I think it's less about like, God will never let you struggle because. Yeah. That, 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 
platitude comes from a teach a scripture and 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 that's that's what you're saying mm -hmm. and and in that the context of that verse isn't referring to suffering mm -hmm. it's referring to temptation yeah you'll always have a way out there's some it, big big evangelical pastor i'm not going to say his name it rhymes with bull sostein and <laughs> and he said he said in a tweet the other day like one time it was like god's never give you more than you can handle so if you got big issues that means you got a big destiny like i'm just like that's not helpful oh boy because god like there's struggle yeah you know but like the scripture is about god giving you ways to uh escape the temptation of yeah of, well i think what's helpful to keep in mind when people are doing that again we're having this conversation right now we're not having it having it right after something horrible right. but like there is there is some compassion i can extend towards people who do that because they're doing it out of, I think, two two motivations usually. One is like genuine de de desire to try and help. But I think fear's behind it too. I think there's this need to like, uh, for it to make some sort of sense. You know, it makes it a little less scary. You know, so I, I think even though it's, I don't know, it's not helpful. It's at least the intentions are to be helpful. You know, yeah, something to keep in yeah. mind, yeah. but it's hard in the moment, you know, mm -hmm. I think we were even saying earlier last week about the message and how I, I've just been trying to figure out a way to like accept the hope and like when bad things happen, I feel like us as a society nowadays, like we're almost begging for no good answer like we're almost begging for mm. like mm. like when something bad happens you don't want consolement like you don't want people giving you advice of like you know everything happens for a reason or like these these hope giving things like it's like almost you want the worst case truth to be the truth mm -hmm. and like i don't I, I don't know what to i don't know what to do yeah with that. i can feel that because yeah. it feels like for a long time, the there was all this happy, shiny, people, plasticky kind of presentation of things. And then I think we went through a time of like, no, that's not helpful. But it almost seems like we swung so far that way that you almost give in to like a nihilism of mm -hmm. sorts. Like, a, you know, no, it's, you know, it's like Batman, despair kind of thing. It's like, I think there's a middle, you know, there's a middle, middle place we can, we can yeah. live in. We almost want it to be like nothing happens for a reason god doesn't care about me therefore i don't have to keep trying to trying and being real like being spiritual being religious like i don't have to pursue this anymore i can just finally just live my life mm -hmm. you know and i think i think what people are more yearning for is mm -hmm. togetherness and they're yearning for people to just exist with you Mm -hmm. in the struggle mm -hmm. so this feeling of i'm not alone in like telling me everything's going to be okay but then not being with me when it's not like mm. that's yeah that's yeah. not helpful. does the book bother you does it trouble you oh i had a i had a tough time job mm -hmm. job yep tell us more yeah i um i had to have a pastoral powwow yesterday <laughs> <laughs> excuse me i um I mean, it's a messed up story yeah, for sure. And you can't help go down this path of, I'm really good at separating Old Testament God from New Testament God slash who Jesus tells us God is. And just sitting in this story for a whole Sunday morning, I was like, this is screwed up. Like This is too far. Yeah. And um, which part exactly? Uh, when you tied Job to being Jesus in the story, it was like, well, why am I not more bothered of what happened to Jesus like I am right now what happened to Job? Mm -hmm. um, and then I was wondering, did Job forgive God? Mm -hmm. Which, are do we have a place in that? Hmm. Like, is that okay to ask out loud? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ronald Rawheiser, who I love, he, he argues that's, a big part of the work of second half of life spirituality 
is forgiving God for all the ways your life didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. Really? Mm -hmm. So there's a, I think I like the way he talks about that because it's not implying that, you know, uh, there's room to see that some of it is your own expectations creating a misery mm -hmm. that you're experiencing. You know, sometimes you got to let go of how you wanted your life to be. So you can, it's not necessarily God's fault, but it's like, some people feel like it is, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And, and I think I, I, I love that he goes that far because it can be helpful. It can be helpful to like, it gives you something actually tangible. Yeah. I'm talking to, I'm, I'm going to be that honest with God, that raw with God. Uh, which I think is is really the essence of any sort of authentic spirituality that's worth its weight. You know, if it's going to help you at all, it's got to be that raw, you know? Um, I think how you helped me yesterday was you, you dug a little deeper into the history of, of the book itself mm -hmm. and re, uh, just expanded upon what you, you started to tell us about. Um, but that was really helpful. Do you want to? Yeah. Um, I think most of us are probably troubled there's, there's several things to be troubled by in Job. You know, like, uh, I think us modern people um, kind of living in a a time that Thomas was hinting at where it's like, we're a little skeptical. Things are too happy and too shiny. The end of the book bugs me. It's like too full housey. Mm -hmm. Remember Full House? It was like, things would get really bad, but then all of a sudden that music Goodnight would start. Show. Yeah. <laughs> <Goodnight> <laughs> show. The music would start playing and then everything would just kind of wrap up, you know? I loved that when I was a kid, but now my kids are actually watching Full House and it drives me insane. I'm like, nothing ever, this is the end of the book bugs me a lot because it's like everything, Job gets everything back, you know, and he's happy again. And it's like, that feels a little too clean. Um, but I think most of us are troubled by the very beginning yeah. of the book yeah. that, you know, the heavens essentially is like this courtroom where God has a wager with the devil and this guy suffers horribly for it. You know, um, I think that troubles a lot of people. It troubled me when I was nine and I read it for the first time. I was like, God's like that. Like God would literally bring all that sort of suffering into my life just to prove the devil wrong. Like that feels kind of devilish, you know, especially when everyone's telling you that it's a hundred percent true. It happened. It's mm -hmm. a history. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. When you don't think you have any wiggle room to you question, know. you know, is this historical or is this something else? You know? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's terrifying, you know? So it's a couple of things I'd, I want to say. I didn't have time for this on Sunday. Is we got to be careful because I don't, every book of the Bible isn't trying to tell us everything about everything. They're not trying to give us an exhaustive picture of what God is like. They're usually very like poignant. There's something specific they're speaking to or addressing, you know? So I think Job, you got to be careful with that. We can't, we can't read the book of Job and you know, look at it as our exhaustive understanding of what God is like. There are other places in the Bible that would challenge this presentation of God. Jesus would, you know, uh, he does that essentially in John 9. You know, he's, the disciples are arguing over this man born blind. You know, who sinned? This is obviously God bringing suffering into his life. And Jesus rejects that way of thinking entirely. God's not like that, you know. So you got to be careful. I don't think you can take one book of the Bible and make it exhaustive but is, is the bible like a pineapple maybe not for kara but is the bible like a pineapple why not for kara i can't eat pineapple. pineapple oh yeah it's on on the list i don't know what you mean it's like it's like people decide not to eat pineapple because of the the spikes you can't eat those but well, they, they don't realize that you just got to cut this the, you gotta get the spikes oh you gotta cut get the spikes the, off and it tastes pretty good it tastes i see what good. you're saying it's yeah. one of those. It takes takes a minute. Takes a minute with Thomas. The Thomas like, moment. But then it lands. Yeah, so I guess so. Seeing the banana without peeling it. Yeah, like, that's kind of messed up. That's <laughs> that's pretty good. Well, I think there's actually a way to read Job though, as a rejection, a complete rejection of this way of thinking about God. So I pointed out that the scholars, you know, they talk about the frame story of Job. It's the only part of the book that's not in poetry, and it's the first two chapters and the last eleven verses. Um, there are traces, references to this frame story about Job in other places, you know, besides the Bible. So one of the arguments is this was a, a folk tale, a well-known folk tale that was circulating in the ancient Near East. You know, it's a very uh, Near East story. I mean, Job's from the East. He's not Jewish. In fact, there really is very little bit about the story that's Jewish, you know. Um, 
And then that phrase in the beginning, it says that angels came to God. Really, more accurately, it would be like sons of God. Um, these aren't angels. These are some other heavenly powers or de lesser deities, you know, which again would reflect either a really early Judaism. They weren't as monotheistic. They, you know, monotheistic means you believe in one, only one God. They weren't purely monotheistic in the beginning because they were still coming out of these other tribes that had believed in all these different deities. So either it's early or this is, again, a story that originated outside of Israel, you know. So it's a well-known folktale, and the, it's this picture of these gods making bets and wagers and it impacting people in horrible ways, which if you read a lot of mythology, Greek mythology, those are the stories. The gods are up there, in, and their, their, their petty little squabbles result in horrible things happening to humans, and humans are just supposed to just take it, you know, because they're gods. You could read Job as a rejection of that. So Job keeps... His his point is is that I didn't do anything to deserve this. This isn't right. If anybody needs to justify themselves as God, I want I want a day in court, and I want to I want to prove to God why this is this is not right. Um, and so Job finally gets that. God speaks to Job starting in chapter thirty eight, right? Uh, and nowhere in God's speeches does He actually try to answer Job's questions. He just starts talking about how powerful He is. And all the things that he can do and Job can't do. So it kind of feels like um, when your kids, you know, you punish them for something or you're mad at them about something and they start asking you really good questions, you know, about like how you're acting. And then you finally just resort to, do you pay the bills? <laughs> you know, <laughs> do you like, are you in charge here? Did you bring yourself, you know, into, ex I brought you into this world, right? <laughs> because they're kind of poking at, like, they're making a good point. My son is the worst at this. I mean, arguing the best, with him, the best, the best at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, dang it, he's right. You know? So then you just automatically appeal to like, I'm the great and powerful or whatever. And then what's interesting is there's this moment in the middle of, of God's speech where Job actually speaks. It's in chapter 40. And you can, some people read this as like him conceding, like, okay, you're right. You're God. But you can also read it as him not conceding. He says, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I mean, it could be a little sarcastic, right? But then he says, I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. You could look at it as like, you know, I've already said it and I was wrong. I'm not going to speak anymore. I think a way you could read it though is I said what I said. I'm not going to repeat myself. You still haven't answered me. You still haven't answered these questions. And towards the end, it's interesting is that Job gets vindicated in front of the friends. He's spoken right friends haven't. And so Job, in some ways, you could read this as he wins an argument with this hmm. expression of God. That is very Jewish. Like, that is very Jewish. The rest of the story isn't. But I mean, Israel is named after a guy who did what? Wrestled with God. Like, central to, you know, Judaism's understanding of your relationship with the gods isn't you just roll over and take it, is you wrestle, you're honest. I mean, half the Psalms are, where are you? You suck, essentially, you know, uh, having that kind of a relationship with God where you actually rage hmm. against the heavens. You enter, you you know, you have that kind of relationship with God. And so Job does that. And in the end, he's vindicated. Does that make yeah. sense? So I think you I think you could read it as a way of saying as almost like a satirical, like how you say it, a satire, like Satirical. A, he's being there's an irony and a sarcasm to this. That's like, do you not see how ridiculous this way of thinking about God is? Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. What do you think? Well, it reminds me of, this is nerdy, mm -hmm. Greek mythology, the story of Sisyphus. And Sisyphus was a ruler. It's the story about how Hades, like, sends this guy to push a boulder up a hill mm. and... Right before he gets it above the hill, it rolls back down and he has to constantly do it. It's mm -hmm. like the it's like the original like one of the original kind of archetypes of like the gods punishing, you know, a, a human and nothing ever goes wrong. And it, it like that archetype is re repeated in throughout yeah. history. Even now, like their stories, mm -hmm. movies are about, you know, I remember about Schmidt with Jack Nicholson. It's like nothing goes wrong for this and nothing goes right for this character. Mm -hmm. And, um, but then in Job, 
it it starts like that mm -hmm. and then it ends up god or job actually talking to god yeah yeah and there's all sorts of moments in story and narratives in israel's scriptures where there's there's an argument like moses moses argues mm -hmm. with god you know about if you know if it's a good idea for him to go to egypt like there's this open kind of uh openness to contention you know with god that i i love i love that about you know judaism so it's one way to read it yeah yeah did you have anything else here no you covered it i feel um in the wrong hands or on the wrong platform this this book could be taught mm. uh, and cause a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. And it kind of just brings to my light, like the importance of, you know, a good teacher, an expert, uh, you know, someone to, to really dive in and explain it well to us, you know? Yeah. Does it change your mind about, so you, you mentioned earlier about Jesus yeah. and how, like he said in the sermon that mm -hmm. Job is Jesus. Yep. So Jesus is Job. Which one's better? Well, I think you, you, <laughs> you see, you see, see Jesus, Jesus in, Job. in Job's you story. See, okay, yeah. so it's like, and then you said, like, how can I not be more, like, angry about what happened to Jesus? Is that, like, the whole, because I've always been taught that, like, the idea of Jesus is God taking the form. It's like, if 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 in the story of Job... It didn't start out the way it did. God was just like, I'm going to take the form of a human and mm -hmm. I'm going to have all this crap happen to me instead. Right. You know? Like, is that more life-giving for you? And that's you know, what Nick that... told me yesterday. Okay. He brought me back down to reality uh -huh. and explained. Because well, it's like, yeah, and, and a lot, this comes back to often how it's taught though. I mean, mm -hmm. the dominant way I heard it growing up and even through undergrad, you know, it's, 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 they're called atonement theories. So what's actually happening on the cross is kind of what, is what, is what that's about. And the most popular in our part of the world in our day and age is, you know, what they would call uh, the penal substitutionary atonement theory, which is Jesus is taking God's wrath, you know, the, the wrath of a holy, just God. And so through that lens, you know, if Jesus is Job, it kind of makes sense. Like God, God is inflicting all of this onto Job so he doesn't have to afflict it onto us kind of a thing. And I don't, I don't like totally dismissing that theory of the atonement. I think there are elements of that. There's elements of that in the cross that like, you know, it's, it's somehow atoning for my sin because all that's wrong with the world isn't out there, is it? It's in here too. Like I participate in that through my indifference and all sorts of stuff is that it is somehow a part of, you know, Jesus on the cross. But I think it's more, more powerful to think it's not God inflicting pain and suffering on Jesus. It's God as Jesus mm -hmm. taking the pain and the suffering that the world humans often bring into the, into it. You know, it's not him taking it from God. It's God as Jesus absorbing that, you know, it's supposed to bother us though. I think, I think all the things that bother us about the Bible in general, like it just is chalked up to humanity trying to make sense right. of it and then just getting it wrong, just like usual, you know, like, mm -hmm. like everything about it. It's not like, well, if I don't agree with this part of the Bible, so it's God's fault. I was like, I think it's just like, hmm. it's, it's, it's us trying to make sense of God and just not quite hitting the mark. Yeah. And well, it's like, you know, we, we shape our gods and then our gods shape us for that said before is that, you know, you become like the God you worship. And so a lot of the times we create a God we, we like, you know, mm. um, we like a God who punishes sin because we want to be able to punish sin. You know, it's like, yeah. um, and so that's what I think the safest thing to do is to interpret the Bible through the most counterintuitive upside down sort of lens, the cross, you know, what does it mean? Paul said it this way. Christ crucified is the wisdom and power of God. The purest revelation, every every glimpse of God we get is veiled in some sort. You know, he talks about it. We see through a mirror dimly. The only real glimmer you actually get of the essence of God is Jesus on the cross. That isn't, you're not seeing what God is doing to Jesus. You're seeing who God is in Jesus, that he would willingly suffer 
innocently for our garbage, you know, absorb it and not retaliate, but somehow absorb it and overcome it in love and come out on the other side, you know, like, so you interpret the interpret scripture through that lens, that that is what God is like. For me, when I do that, man, there are all sorts of things, troubling things that get knocked off. And then there are some even more troubling things that get introduced. Mm. But those troubling things tend to inspire me to be a better human. They're challenging more than they're troubling. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is there some truth to like the parts of the story that are are hard to swallow about God, the nature of God? And like when it's said to be God-fearing and the idea of is there some sort of healthy aspect of that mm. that we can take away from? Because I think a lot of people are resistant to this idea of, you know, God being all powerful. And I don't want to worship a God that causes bad things to happen or is like, is there some sort of sobering kind of rational take on this where it's like, it it is healthy to recognize that if we if we for a part of mm-hmm. this relationship with God that God is all powerful like there should be some sort of healthy fear like a healthy yeah. fear of God is God you know mm-hmm. and I, I feel like some people are like if God if God is this awful person that lets atrocities happen I don't want to worship him like that like, like if that's true, like you probably should worship, but like, I don't think that's true, but <laughs> I'm just saying like, is there a part of that? That's like, you're kind of getting into that. There's a healthy, yeah, I, a healthy take on that. That's like, I don't know. I, um, I think a part of the long dramatic monologue that God has in Job about the vastness and complexities of his world should be awe inspiring. Mm. Um, I don't know about fear. Um, but I think that was the point to 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 Job to like, he's really got a handle on everything. Mm-hmm. And that's impressive and awesome and complex. So trust is wisdom kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, were you touching on the, the answer to the question? What were you? Well, you said something yesterday that we, you know, we have we have a hard time imagining a God who would inflict this sort of suffering intentionally or intentionally allow it. But but you said something along the lines of, but what if that is God? Like, what if that's yeah. actually what God is like? Like and we just don't like that answer. I was, yeah, I'm like, is it convenient to have God present in the healing and the outcome? And we just tell ourselves that he's not present in the causing or the inflicting of the suffering. Or he's not the cause. He's, of it. Yeah. So is that just our human brains trying to Make that a make more convenient story, nicer. or do we just not want to know the answer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you want to say something? Oh, no, I haven't thought about it that way. I I feel like we, we uh, you know, humans like to end it like full house. Mm-hmm. Got to end in a pretty bow. So it feels better to leave him out of the the events that led up to the tragedy, the loss, the the hurt, whatever. Um, but that he's there with us on the other side. But I feel like I've never thought of it. You're mm-hmm. right. Like maybe we just didn't. See, I don't I know think, how to comprehend that. You know, like I don't know how I to think reconcile it might that be with easier to believe in a God who afflicts pain and suffering. We are, we live in the Western world. That's why sometimes the Bible, we forget the Bible was written by people who were suffering. You know, like, I cringe at some of the Psalms and what they say. And there's one, it talks about, I want to take my enemy's babies and dash them against the rocks. Like this is in the Bible. Like, you know, and I'm like, oh, how could you? But I also live in very comfortable settings. Like what's, what's somebody who lives in a country where their kids are getting ripped out of their arms and, you know, being turned into child soldiers or whatever it is. Like, what do you think they're wanting? You know, like there's this, I think I wonder if in the majority of the world we we talk about how we we want a God you know it's easy for us to believe in a God that puts a nice bow on things uh, yeah we live in air conditioned houses and we have you know it's more natural for us to believe in that sort of God suffering is an interruption to our normal experience but for a lot of people suffering is the normal experience you know mm. and so I wonder if what's actually more counterintuitive 
the idea of a God bringing suffering or the idea of a God who won't bring suffering, but who will work in it. Like, I actually think that one's more counterintuitive to the, to the normal human experience. Mm -hmm. And I think the caution behind some of this is like, are we just deciding who God is based on our preferences? That's, that is always the fact you're even asking that question to me is important. That's fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is like, I'm not God. There's a God and I'm not God. So I think we always have to start from a place of your God. I don't get to decide what you do, but I can decipher who you are based on my commitment to Jesus and who Jesus reveals you to be. You know, so for me, like Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, you know, hate your enemies, love your neighbors, hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies, you know, and he goes on to say, that is that is how you are like God. Like that is the purest form of maturity is when you can get to a place where you love your own enemies because God sends good to people, whether they deserve it or not. Like, like for him, that isn't just like an aspect of God. That is the core. That is the essence of who God is. And so to be really honest with you, because sometimes the critique is you're just trying to make God more palatable mm-hmm. by taking some of this. That is not an easier God to believe in for me. I would much prefer a God who says, who justifies my anger and my rage at all the bad people in the world. And the idea of a God who wants me to love them and serve them, that is not easy. That's harder. Does that make sense? Like, Mm -hmm. I would much rather prefer a tribal God who's like, we're the right people and they're the wrong ones. Our job is to go and conquer them and conquest them and destroy them. That is an easier God for me to follow, you know? It's more black and white. It's um, and it's easier. I can be the good guy, and they can be the bad guy, and God's on my side. But man, a God who says, "Nope, they're wrong, they're bad," love them anyway, mm-hmm. forgive them anyway. Oh, so that's why I can trust. This is not my own idea. This is too too good to be my idea. You know, my projection. Um, it's it's beyond us. You know, this isn't our idea. This isn't the kind of God we would make up. You know, um which gives me room to trust it. And so I'm all for editing the old Testament all for it. I think Jesus did it. There are parts that I drop that I say, I, I, I have gotten to a place, took me a long time to get here. So I'm not trying to, you know, look down on people who can't do this yet with the text, but I read the book of Joshua and it says, God told him to kill everybody. I, I can so quickly not go, no, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. We, we projected that onto, onto God, mm-hmm. that God, you know, but God didn't actually tell them to do that. I'm not just deciding that because I don't like it. I'm, I'm at that place because that is not who Jesus says God is. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's not just, ooh, Nick doesn't prefer that, so I'm not going to listen to it, or I'm not going to pay. No, Jesus said, God's not like that. I trust Jesus. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love what you said about to be God-fearing is to say and surrender the idea of like I'm not God. Mm-hmm. 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 And it's like the first part of the story is set up in a way very similar to like the way that Greeks treated like Zeus and mm-hmm. Hades. Yeah. And this idea of like to f- the idea of fearing God was putting your this is how I think God would work is with Zeus. Like you have to you have to worship him and give him sacrifices and, and pray to him and ask that, you know, mm-hmm. please don't send a tornado to kill me. Like, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that you're suggesting or you're saying is like, Hey, to be God fearing is actually to say, you know, reject this idea of, of you trying to put yourself in God's mm-hmm. shoes and mm-hmm. follow what, you know, Christ says to love your enemies, love your neighbor, mm-hmm. love God. Like that idea is, is what it means to be God fearing. Cause you're not putting yourself in, no. in that aspect. No, I am not the determiner of what God is like something other than me, you know, influences that. Mm-hmm. What are you thinking over there? Nothing. I'm taking it all in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have any action? Well, you know, I steps. One of the things I really appreciate about this, about the book though, is we got into it a little bit towards the end, but you know, there's comfort, some somewhat comfort in this, you know, and, and and who God presents himself to be in the speeches. He's very attentive. He's very capable. He's, you know, 
and there's life happening all over the place. But at the same time, there's no, there's it's not really resolved. He's never his question is never answered. Mm-hmm. You know, even in the end, when Job is has everything doubled and he has ten kids back or whatever, mm-hmm. it's still not. He's never told why all that happened. Mm-hmm. He he Are does the same kids. Did he like? Yeah, that's, there you kids? go. That's a fun conversation. Are they the same wife? You know, the same family. Or the is wife, it the wife never died? Oh, okay. He, um, I didn't read it. <laughs> no, there is. There's conversation around that because everything else is doubled in Job's, Job's life. Like everything is twenty, but, except for the kids. Yeah. Which some scholars say they got brought back. It was the same ten. But you know, it's really funny. I don't think the original audience would have cared as much as we did. They didn't have the feelings we do about kids, which is something to think about. Yeah. I mean, the ancient world, they didn't have these as much of, I don't want to say any, because like, how do I really know? But when you read about how they thought about children in the ancient world, it wasn't like this, you know, mushy-gushy. Yeah, we have our pictures everywhere. Mm-hmm. And we, kids were like commodities. They were your. It was legacy. Well, yeah, it helped you, you know, grow your farm farm and your estate. They were, you know, and up until the Greek period, you know, kids were, were not seen as fully human. Mm-hmm. Children were not fully human. You know, they had a place. So like us modern readers who God, we have, we love our children and we cherish them. And we, the idea of them not coming back. Oh, first readers been like, oh, you guys, he got his 10 donkeys back. I mean, it would have been like, you know, kind of similar kind of vibe, you know? Which is interesting, shows you the influence of Jesus on the world. Sure. Because guess who ushered in? Hey, children are not commodities. You know, it was Christians who did away with child labor, like in America. In America, you know, the after the um, uh, industrial revolution, Christians were the ones saying, "Hey, kids shouldn't be working like this." Kids, does that make sense? Like, anyway, this is interesting observation. But um, I love how the book. I love the fact that Job's not given an answer why, mm-hmm. because it's so true to, true to experience. And why doesn't help you anyway? Why doesn't bring the kids back? Why doesn't bring any of that back? You know. And so, if you're asking for like an action step, I think it's certainly appropriate in the aftermath and the immediate to rage why questions at God, like definitely. But I also think the sooner we can move past why, to you know, what, to what to w- what now? I mean, what now? Like. The sooner you can make that transition, the better, you know, you are, you are definitely, um, rage against God. Yes. You can take it, you know, uh, do that, but also recognize like what we need most in suffering is not answers. It's resources. Mm -hmm. We need, we need strength to endure it. We need community to help us. We need, that's what we need. And then the creativity down the road to redeem it. And I think that's what, that's where I see God's presence in the midst of suffering. You know, it's not in the explanations for what happened, but it's the strength I see in well up in people on the other side of it. And then the beauty of somehow even redeeming it to an extent, you know, you see like people who lose a, lose a child young and then you watch them show up for other mm-hmm. people who've, who've lost a child or they get involved in some type of, you know, uh, they support some type of medical research or whatever it is. You see, like, that's where I see God, you know? Um, and so I think for a lot of us, just to be aware of that, we can spin our wheels on why forever. And it can be a big fat waste of energy, you know? I feel like also a good action step would be to maybe identify people who you need to be available for, hmm. not not be available for answers, but just be available. Like this idea of, I mean, we have friends that are going through, not specific, but in general, we have friends that are, that deal with tragedy. And your first thought is if I can explain to them like something to give them life, then it's going to be better. But it's like, you can't explain certain things. Mm -hmm. All you can just do is, is be there, yeah. you know? And I feel like going back to what I said at the beginning was like, our f- first thought is to explain to them, but then also mm-hmm. back off and don't stay in it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, rather than just being in. Yeah. What's redemption? I think it's, re- I think for me, it's redemption. Like we, we, how can we open up, open up the door for God to take something that, wrecked us 
and somehow inspire it, inspire us to leverage that for somebody else's good. You know, it's when the abuse victim grows up and starts advocating for kids who are in, you know, similar situations or whatever. I think, man, and even those of us who've lost people, we don't honor them by quitting on our lives. We don't, you know, we honor them by thinking about what made them amazing and then emulating that and living even more, you know, more robust lives. Cause think about it this way. What if it were you? Like, what if you died and you could somehow watch everybody you leave behind and you could see them and they just kind of, she's not here. Like, I just, I don't know what to do. And they quit and they just kind of curl up. Cause sometimes despair can do that to people. It folds you in. What would you want to say to them? That's not what you'd want. What would you want them to do? Live. You know what I'm saying? Like live, like be alive. That's not, they're not doing me any good, you know, by just collapsing in on yourself. Um, and yes, there's a time for grief, for mourning and despair, all that. But I think that's kind of the message of Job is the examples that God gives Job is life. It's life. It's animals. It's some hilarious, you know, descriptions of like ostriches and how they run. And I mean, it's kind of, <laughs> apparently it's beautiful poetry in the original Hebrew. You read in English, you're kind of like, that sounds kind of funny. Um, but it's just overwhelming with there's, it's life. Life's still happening. Life's still happening. Life's still happening, you know? So yeah, got to live. Gotta live. That's all I got. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, Kara, you want to close us in prayer? I will. Yes. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it, y'all. God, I am so thankful for these people. I'm thankful for this podcast. I'm thankful for the Emmaus community. Um, I'm glad I get to be a part, just a little small part of something really great happening here in Columbia. Um, I ask um, and I just pray that those who have listened and um, and had part of this conversation um, will walk away knowing that um, it is okay to question you. It is okay to um, to uh, just know that you are um, you're okay with taking our our anger and our wrath. You um, and that you will be there with us on the other side of things, God. Um, and we love you and we um, are thankful for you. And these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.